BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and today I'm excited to have clinical psychologist, school consultant, and international speaker and best-selling author, Michael Thompson. Dr. Thompson was on the podcast before because he wrote Raising Cain, and we had an episode in the first season that was so wonderful. And I asked him to come back because he wrote a book called Homesick and Happy About Summer Camp. And I've gotten so many questions about what to do with homesick kids who are at summer camp, who are thinking of going to summer camp, who are asking to come home from summer camp and who are coming home from summer camp soon and possibly camp sick, missing their experience at camp. So we're going through all of those scenarios and what to say and how to think about when to worry, what to do with our own anxieties and how to make decisions about summer camp and the transition into the end of the summer camp season and the new school year. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review and just tell me your favorite line or thought or episode. I'm really hoping you're enjoying your summer. And if you have little ones who are off to summer camp that you're hanging in there, maybe even having a blast. And if you're thinking about it, maybe this can help you think about it for next year. Well, I ask a parent what they're afraid of. Um, I had a mother write me on my website and, and say that or she'd sent her daughter off to camp. She'd sent two uh, girls off to camp and one was really enthusiastic and the other was somewhat reluctant and foot dragging. And the foot dragger uh, <laughs> began to write immediately and say she was miserable and she was trusting that her mother would get her mid-season, take her home. And she wanted her mother to promise this. And the mother wrote me and said, uh, please tell me whether if I insist she stays, it, it won't result in a lifelong trauma. <laughs> so at least she put it right down in writing what she was. What's afraid. her fear? Yeah, it, her fear was of a lifelong trauma. And my guess is that the daughter who was an early adolescent was having ambivalent feelings about being at camp. And indeed, she complained about some of the social interactions with 12 and 13 year olds at camp. Can you imagine that? That a 12 or 13 year old might find the interactions with other 12 or 13 year olds. Challenging. <laughs> Can you imagine that? No, I cannot. <laughs> well, so the question is, when you have the impulse to rescue your child, do you rescue him because you have the fear of lifelong trauma? Mm. Or do you have the fear that they can't sort things out with their friends? Mm -hmm. 
And if you run to rescue them, are you then in fact giving a vote of no confidence to your child in their own ability to handle their lives? Those are two incredibly important questions to ask ourselves when these kinds of letters, calls, and I guess emails now come in. I think we can answer fairly certainly in most cases, but I'm going to let you speak to this. The question about, will I traumatize my child if I don't pick them up? Yeah. So let's get that one out of the way. (laughs) Then we'll move to the next one. Well, what's the worst thing that could happen uh, to a child who's left in a loving camp with attentive counselors and friends? Chris Thurber, the great expert on camp homesickness, uh, who's written more scientific papers about it than anybody, says that there are only a tiny fraction of kids who have extreme uh, distress. Mm -hmm. Certainly less than 6% of kids at camp. But what camp directors tell me is most of those kids stay. They're homesick part of every day, but they want to make it. They Mm -hmm. want to work through it. And camp directors tell me, and and when I was writing uh, Homesick and Happy, I interviewed you know, hundreds of campers. And I I talked to campers who themselves had uh, experienced real painful bouts of homesickness uh, one year, but returned the next year, had painful bouts of homesickness and returned a third year anyway. And I said, why? And Mm -hmm. they said, because I wanted to beat it, right? Mm -hmm. In in the book, I, I tell this story about my son, Will, who we sent off to a camp at age 12. And he was there for two years and then chose to go to another camp. That's a whole other story I wrote about in the book. But when he was 20 years old and I was reading Chris Thurber's research on homesickness, I realized that my son, Will, was certainly in the 19% of kids who experienced significant distress. But I didn't know if he'd been in that 6% who'd had sort of nonstop distress. So I went to a 20-year-old and I said, Will, when you were at camp, were you homesick? Most of every day, yes, Dad. That whole first summer, yes, Dad. But why did you go back the second year? If you you know your mother was worried about you, the two of you could have outvoted me. And he said, Dad, if you can't learn to sleep away from home, it means you have to live with your parents for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I laughed because it's so true. The idea that your parent has to rescue you from a developmental challenge and only she or he can rescue you and make you safe. It it suggests that you don't have confidence in your child that he or she may want to grow and develop even in the face of pain. Yes. It's such a big, big challenge for parents right now to recognize that. And I'm wondering, it's so great to hear you say these things. It's very I think, I think it's pretty comforting or that's what I'm hoping for, because let's talk about some of the strategies that kids will use that are still in the category of you can, you're not traumatizing them in their letters, in their emails, in their calls. Well, you know, they will write you because kids know that they're going to get a hearing from their parents. And so they save up all the pain and then they put it in a letter. YMCA camps in Massachusetts told me that uh, he had sent his daughter off to a YMCA camp 
in his old stomping ground, Minnesota, because he didn't want her in one of his camps. But she she wrote letters and she said, you know, I'm really enjoying Camp Dad. It's just that I'm throwing up two or three times a day and I just need to see a doctor. But otherwise, everything's fine. Right. <laughs> <No> problem. What <laughs> a freak your parents out. Do you, do you think the counselors and, and the camp director in Minnesota would not have noticed if she was uh, throwing up? Throwing up three times a day. Sure. Right. But a parent has to have faith that you have put your child in a situation where they are seen and known and cared about. A neglectful camp where a kid who doesn't show up for breakfast and and is curled up in their bunk is every parent's nightmare. But it's extraordinarily, extraordinarily rare in, in the camp industry because the counselors care and they keep counting heads and they count heads all day and everybody counts heads all the time. Everybody, where is she? Where is she? So your child is being seen and looked after all the time. And so what I said to this mother who said that her daughter said she was having a miserable time socially and wanted the mother's promise that she would come get her. I said, you need to call the camp director and find out both through him or her what the counselors are seeing during the day. Because very often a child will be having a good day and then at night be gripped by some sadness or homesickness and then write and say, the, the camp's terrible, come get me. Right. But they, Just during that they, time. They, they had a good day. So you have to check on a, the objective reality of the day. Right. That, that's, that's number one. The second thing you need to do is coach yourself not to be inflamed by your child's anxiety. Look, this generation of parents, as you well know, Lisa, is parenting with attachment and attunement theory in mind, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to be completely attuned with their child, very close with an open channel between them. And I believe in this, I believe in this, I believe in this. But when you have an open channel between parent and child, sometimes the anxiety can come in one direction, then Back on over. And then back the other and be amplified and go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, right? You've seen this a million times. Of course. Right. So when you have that open channel, you have to remember that your own anxiety may be triggered. And then your anxious response then makes the child anxious, right? Because the child says, oh, I'm anxious. And the mother says, really, are you? And the child says, oh, there must be something to be anxious about because my mother, listen right. to my mother's voice, right? So a couple of things. First of all, I think it's a really important point. What you said is that the, about attunement and attachment with that in mind, but misunderstanding that that actually does, attunement is important. Attachment is important. Neither of those things are saying you should be actually physically attached at all times. And neither of those things are saying that you should be attuned at all times. It's dynamic and it's going to have repairs. And you know this, and I'm saying this for the benefit of everybody listening, but I think it can get so confusing for parents to hear you're supposed to be attuned and sensitive to your children. And it can accidentally get translated as every time they have a feeling, you accommodate that feeling and allow for whatever behavior goes along with it. And that is not what attunement means. And that's not what attachment is. So it's really important to hear that. And second, I want to, or I don't know if there was a verse, but I also wanted to ask you to elaborate on if you know that you bend a little bit more anxious and you have a child who's going through this experience, 
Are there some scripts that, of course, parents can translate for themselves in their own authentic language, but some scripts you can give in letters back or emails back that might help parents redirect while also obviously validating those feelings, but but helping give responses that aren't, I'm going to pick you up and this must be so awful? The problem with I'm going to pick you up and this must be so awful, then once you promise it, then the child has to have a bad time. That's actually, I'm going to, I I want you to expand on that too, because I think a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people say this, I couldn't get my kid to go to camp if I didn't promise I would pick them up if they were having a bad time. You know, so I think that point that you made is so important, not just during camp, but before somebody goes to camp. And this obviously wouldn't help anybody out this year, but next summer they can think of it. Promising that you're going to pick your child up if they don't like it is sort of guaranteeing that they won't necessarily like it. That's what I mean by a vote of no confidence. Yeah. You're saying, sweetie, I love you. I love you. I think other children can make it to a whole camp session, but I wouldn't be surprised if you couldn't. Okay. Uh, so I'll come and rescue you if you yeah. can. And you're saying to your child, I, I think you're too fragile. That, that's what you're saying. So if somebody made that mistake, because... We all have those moments where we say something as a parent, we think, oh man, I want to take that back. How can we take it back? And then separately, I took you away from being able to answer my question about what are some some scripts for parents in letters to respond to the teary-eyed drama in the letters? Well, the, the most important thing is to call the camp director or call the, the wigwam director or the whatever, you know, uh-huh. whatever, whoever is in a position to your, see your child and find out whether your child's days are mostly pretty darn good. Uh-huh. Okay. Once you have that in hand, then you can think I'm not torturing her. I'm not, you know, I haven't sent her to a Siberian uh, a prison camp. Then you can get, you can get centered and you can get your feet under you. And you can say, I'm sorry. You can write back and say, I'm sorry you felt so bad last time we talked. I hope things have gotten better. And I talked to you, uh, the camp director and she says, you're doing a pretty good job. And I was really glad to hear that. Love, yeah. mom. Then you can say, I want you to stick it out. Uh, I hope you can. I think it'll be a tremendous summer uh, if you're able to do that. And you express your wish because many of us send children to a camp because we understand they need a break from us and we need a break from them and they will grow in camp. You know, I wrote my book, Homesick and Happy, because I, got, I was on the board of the ACA, the American Camp Association, and I heard everybody talk about the magic of camp, the magic of camp as if it were horseback riding or uh, race car driving or whatever. You know, the camps for me. <laughs> But I, that's not the magic of camp. The magic of camp is you're away from your parents. That's the magic of sleepaway camp. You are away from your parents and what you do is yours and yours alone. It's independence. It's autonomy. It's psychological ownership. Don't take that away. You made that decision for a right reason. Don't take it away. And now a quick break so that I can give you a word from my sponsors. If you're feeling overwhelmed by everything going on about getting back into the world, about uncertainty, it's important to find the support you need to face all of those feelings and move forward. 
The world is racing to get back to normal. After this year, getting back to feeling normal takes time. Getting unbiased feedback and advice from a licensed professional can be refreshing and rewarding. Obviously, I am incredibly thrilled to have Talkspace as my sponsor because Talkspace makes it easy to match with a licensed therapist and schedule live video sessions all from the comfort of your device. You can start messaging your therapist the same day you sign up. The Talkspace app makes it easy to connect with your licensed therapist on your schedule without having to work for weeks before you can get a next appointment. And given the world that we've just lived in and are currently living in, people are getting used to doing things from the comfort of their home. You can do whatever you want, but still keep your commitment to your time with a therapist. Talkspace can provide the support to help you feel better with a single message. Talkspace offers individual and couples therapy in addition to medication prescription services. Set goals with your therapist and let them help you make sure you're really progressing. Talkspace therapists help you develop tools to cope in difficult times. And Talkspace works around your schedule at your convenience. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform to help you sort through all sorts of feelings, thoughts, and issues. There are thousands of licensed therapists that are available for you to match with. Therapists that are licensed, experts in their field with dozens of specialties, start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code HUMANS. That's $100 off when you use the code H-U-M-A-N-S at Talkspace.com. It is so crucial to take care of your own mental health so that you can take care of those around you. As you prep for back to school season, securing life insurance is another thing to slide into that to-do list between buying a protractor and some number two pencils. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes and get covered. Summer is almost over. Responsibility is going to rear its head. So it's a great time to get this off your to-do list. And if someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, an aging parent, or a partner, you need life insurance. To properly provide for their families, most people need 10 times the life insurance coverage than they get through their employer. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. You can save up to 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You can save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. So you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. Eligible applicants can also get covered in as little as a week thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for a simple phone call. This inclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes. So getting started is really easy. You just head to policygenius.com and in minutes you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need, compare personalized quotes to find your best price. And when you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius does not add extra fees. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. 
policy genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. This is not fun stuff to think about, but it's just a to-do thing that we have to do. So why not make it easier on yourself? At Ancient Nutrition, they have one goal, to transform the health of every individual on the planet. That drives them to create whole food nutritional products made with real ingredients for real results that you can feel and see. Every product they create is rooted in tradition and supported by science. Ancient nutrition is based on traditional Chinese herbalism and Ayurveda, which are ways of eating and thinking that have survived generations. And it's combined with today's modern research. It's not just about eating the right foods. It's about ingredients that your body can truly use. So ancient nutrition sources the world's highest quality ingredients and rigorously tests them for pesticides, herbicides, and heavy metals. It's why they do everything they can to create products that your body can easily digest and absorb and that you know you can feel safe using because they've taken the time to get rid of all of the stuff that can go into so many products that claim to be healthy. Every one of the products has a purpose. So the fan favorite and my favorite is the multi-collagen protein. If you're looking for a great place to start, this is it. Multi-collagen protein can help revitalize your joints, skin, and hair, and it can help smooth your skin, improve your skin tone. It's just like, why not? You can't even taste it. You just scoop it, put it in your coffee. It has no taste. It dissolves right away. And it's awesome. Go to ancientnutrition.com and use the code humans, H-U-M-A-N-S for 20% off your first ancient nutrition purchase. If you're looking to revitalize your joint skin and hair, use the code humans for 20% off at store.drexe.com. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. We're the co-hosts of the Puberty Podcast. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. So now let's talk about just briefly, well, I guess you kind of answered it. If parents are really worried and their child is really threatening and saying things and you know, you've heard it a million times, at what point is it almost like leave it to the camp to let you know as you talk to them if this really is a a case where they haven't seen anything like it before and you should come and get your child? Yeah. And, and that's the direct question you should ask. Have you ever seen anything like this before? You know, I interviewed a girl about a camp, an arts camp in Connecticut, and she's in the book. And her parents kept coming up. And then she would throw herself at their feet and grab onto their legs and have a sobbing uh, reaction. And, you know, the parents would have to pull themselves away from her. It was a ghastly scene. And <laughs> she told me, I interviewed her two years later. And she said, my parents never should have come up. Those were terrible meetings. Every time I saw them, my homesickness just completely spiked and I went to pieces. So 
what parents think is that they always can be comforting, but they f- forget that their presence, in fact, may inflame the homesickness. Mm-hmm. That, that a mother or father's voice uh, exerts what in psychology we would call a regressive pull. It makes the child feel younger. Oh, my mom's voice, right? Look, hey, when you're 18 or 28 or 38, your mom's voice can do that to you. You know, she can kind of <laughs> unravel you because yep. she yep. knew you when. Yeah. And, but you don't want to unravel a kid. You don't want to unravel a kid. I, I had a, uh, I was once at American school in London and they had a junior class of, uh, that did environmental science. And the culminating experience of the class was they went to South Africa and lived uh, uh, in a nature preserve in tents, you know, with wild animals around, lions and stuff. And the kids were all ready to do this. They'd studied the science many classes before, done it with these teachers and stuff like that. But one of the girls had a medical issue and it was a gynecological issue. And I I wasn't allowed to know what it was, but (laughs) I learned that the teachers had to take the girl to a doctor and the doctor cleared her, but they were, required to notify the mother and then the mother wanted to talk to her daughter and so the daughter a junior in high school started well she was then a senior and she described she said I was talking to my mother and she kept saying are you sure are you sure you want to stay oh no are you want to stay and the daughter said I just realized I had to get off with the phone with my mother because if I kept talking to her I was going to go home right right yeah. That's the regressive pull of the mother. The mother was being her loving best self, mm-hmm. but it was unraveling the 16 and a half year old who wanted to stay with her classmates in a national park in South Africa. So when people are picking up their kids after they didn't take them home early, or what about the ones who picked up their kids early because they are listening to this and they're like, oops, <laughs> I did, I did give in and I picked up my child and I was anxious about their their distress. They have to say to their child, we picked you up last summer and whether that was right or wrong, we want you to know, we want you to do the whole session this year and we have confidence you can do it. Great. So it's not, since you didn't like it the first time, let's just give up. Oh, I think that's a very bad thing. I mean, it's a very bad, think about sports coaches. You know, sports coaches ask kids, to do really challenging things mm-hmm. that tire them out, that exhaust them, that sometimes frighten them. And kids are able to do it because their coaches say with conviction, I think you can do it. I believe you. you to do it unless I thought you could do it. Mm-hmm. That's a really important point. You've made a few times in different ways, starting with, you know, in the beginning when you said you, you've chosen a safe, loving camp, you're not you aren't putting them in a, a prison somewhere. So, you know, right. and, and same thing in this case is I'm asking you to do something that I know you can do. I'm, I'm st- you're stretching yourself perhaps, hopefully, but I'm not asking you something that I think is unreasonable and that you can't do. Well, let me just give you a, a, a short personal example. Last week we were up in New Hampshire hiking with my grandchildren, just hiking is what I love to do. And my daughter's a good hiker. And we took her three kids, nine, seven, and four and a half. And on the first day of hiking, it was raining and her four and a half year old kind of collapsed and he was whiny and clingy and stuff like that. And he got his mother to carry him for quite a stretch. Now he's not, he's four and a half. He's big. That's a, that's quite a burden for yeah. her. I couldn't have carried him. I'm 74 years old. But I said to him at the end of the hike, you know, I wish I could tell you that you'd hiked, uh, that I wish I could tell people you'd hike the hike. 
but your mom carried you. And he looked at me because I wasn't scolding, but I was, there was, I was sending him a message. Right. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. next tape was sunny and bright. And he was, he, he was in a different mood. He hiked 5.4 miles. There you go. You pushed he him need, a little. He, made, he needed to be carried in a three mile hike in the rain. But the next day he hiked 5.4 miles and not carried a bit. So wow. it was in him. The ability to do it was in him. He had to find it. And he couldn't find it that first day. And his mom caved. Let's be honest. I yeah. love water, but she caved. And the second day she said, I'm not carrying you. And she didn't. And he was able to do it. Yes, absolutely. There you go. So part of this is also, as you asked in the beginning, what are we afraid of when we want to rescue? Right. And and it's that moment of, I'm, I'm sure there's actually a small percentage of people that are just like, I don't want to deal with this. That's what I'm afraid of. So I'm just going to fix it because I don't want to deal with it. But for I most, can't stand the conflict with my child. Yeah, because I can't uh, stand the conflict. Yeah. And then for, for the majority of people, it's probably more, it's just so stressful to see your child in distress. You don't, you want to fix that challenging feeling. Because you can't bear your child's sadness or anxiety at that moment. So that's where I'm going with this. So I would love for you to speak to what that message is, because I think it helps people fight the urge to not be able to handle the different range of emotions that their child will inevitably experience so that that's not something they, that message doesn't get across in the way that I think it's an accidental message. I don't think anybody intends to tell their child, I can't handle your big feelings or your challenging feelings but that's what maybe is happening. So let's go back to my grandson for a moment. Your four-year-old grandson, right? Four four and a half-year-old grandson. He turns five in- uh, Perfect example. And he had uh, some scabs on his right knee. And on the second day, he fell down and scraped the right knee again. And he cried and his mother brushed the dirt off and there was a little blood. And she said, we'll get you a Band-Aid. And- then later in the day, later in that hike, he fell down and hit the knee in the very same place. And he came crying to her. And now he had more blood. And she said to him, she hugged him. She comforted him. She said, I'm so sorry. And then she said to him, you know, you have to stop hitting the same knee. And he laughed. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. You got to hit yourself somewhere else. But he laughed. And that's resilient. Yeah. But she joked with him about it. She didn't treat it as if it were a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. It was some blood and it was painful, no doubt. Uh, but it wasn't a catastrophe. And he recovered. And incidentally, he didn't even ask for abandon when he got the bottom. It didn't <laughs> up again. That's a great example. Um, so now we're coming to the second half of everybody tolerating camp. And and hopefully a lot of people are thrilled with camp and thrilled that their children are awake, <laughs> even if they miss them. When they come back, what is your... So I know you have a, a lot to say about transitioning back from camp. I think you called it something that I thought was really cool. Oh, I bet they- uh, there's homesickness and then there's camp sickness. Camp sickness. Camp, camp yes. professionals always talk about camp sickness. Yes. But let, let me tell you, I spent three days at a camp in Vermont week before last, and I'd never seen such happy kids. They were so delighted to be there. They were so grateful 
to be away from home and with <laughs> other kids. And all of these camps had tested, had kids tested before they came, tested yeah. five days in. They were all masked for the first five days. There were still COVID protocols and there were some kids eating tents outside the dining hall. And, you know, it wasn't just easy, familiar camp. It was COVID camp. But the kids were so happy and grateful. And they had evidence that their lives were back, that they had their own lives back. Mm. And, and by their own lives, I mean their, yes, of course, their family, their lives with their families are coming back too, but they had their own separate lives back. And when you have a child who's gone to camp and had his or her own life, when they come home, they're a little bit changed and they're a little bit of a stranger. And you have to ask them, how was it? And what did you like the most? And tell me about a counselor you liked. Any counselor you hated? You ask their experience. You ask, and you just shut up and listen. <laughs> you don't say, oh, so was it good? So was it really good? So was it really, really good? You know, uh -huh. i.e., reassure me that I made the right decision by sending you, mm -hmm. which is what when parents are, often think they're asking a question about the child's experience, but they're asking for reassurance from the child. Don't do that. Ask about the child's experience. Wonderful. And now they've come back and they have a little newfound autonomy and maybe some new good habits, maybe some new bad habits. New good habits last for three weeks. And then you <laughs> let your mom... You, then you let your mom wait on you again. Yeah. I I actually, I tell that story all the time. The story you told about making lunch. I think it might have, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was it your granddaughter or your daughter who was making lunch for your older son? Yeah, no, it was a teacher in Washington, D.C. You told me. Oh, that it was a teacher told me a sandwich. Would you make a sandwich for your brother? And the, and the daughter said, he can make his own damn sandwich. He's two years older than I am. Yes, yes, exactly. So our expectations. <laughs> yeah, good you know. for you for remembering that story. That was my favorite story. I, I blew it when I was trying to retell it, but now I'm glad you did because it's so, you know, it is, it is an interesting thing that happens. So what can we help inspire to carry forward given we've had this very long period of time without freedom and without peers and without autonomy. And now coming back from having a camp experience and entering in whatever form it's going to take, it will be in person. I'm imagining unless, you know, I don't even want to say unless it will. <laughs> I think we can say that children will be back in school, even if masked. Yes. What are some ways to help sort of ease the transition back from the world of camp to now the world of getting resettled into home and then back at school after, for some kids, a very long time away? Yeah. Well, you, the first thing you say to them, when they come home from camp, you treat them with respect, ask them what the experience was like and listen. Then when it comes time to look forward towards school, you ask them anything they're worried about going back to school. Do they know they may have to wear masks again? You wish that weren't true, but it looks like many schools are going to require masks mm -hmm. until there's a vaccine for kids. And how do they feel about that? And they'll tell you they're not that great. They're no fun and we can do it. 
because we've done it before. I, I think almost every school child, even in LA County, which is was brutal, they missed 12 months of school. Yes, my but, kids are in Los Angeles. Yeah, everybody's had at least some return to school, haven't they? Even yes. in LA County? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So they've been back and they've been masked and they know it's better with masks than it is remotely. Everybody, every child will, in the world will tell you that. Not every child. There's some socially anxious children. That's what I was going to say. There's that subset. There's, that, there's a tiny slice of the socially anxious who find remote learning comforting because, because of their social anxiety. But the vast majority wanted to be with their teachers and their classmates, even if they were masked up. Absolutely. So um, ask them, can you do it again? Is it gonna, it's going to be tough. I wish it weren't so. Can you do it again? And they'll say yes, because they can. Because they can. Because they can. There's nobody. I mean, I had wild parents who were had fears that their child was going to collapse from wearing a mask. And I just never heard it. I heard about a lot of loud parents from educators and some frightened, really anxious, frightened parents. I never heard a story from an educator about a child who was unable to function with a mask. Mm -hmm. These kids are remarkable. So remembering they're remarkable down to getting them to sleep away camp and believing in them and helping them transition back so they can get back into a more normal, well, let me not say normal, but some form of typical school in this new world. It's an important place for us as the adults to believe in them. Because from what I'm hearing from you, for the most part, they can do all of this and we just need to believe in them. And they can do this and they want to do it. They want to. They want school to be as normal as it possibly can. Because this is what they know. And this is a world with which they're familiar. And it's a world they want to negotiate. And, and the world of being at home, remote learning, with your teacher in a little box and your parent over your shoulder is not a world the kids want full time. I mean, a seventh grade boy in Atlanta said to me last year, Doc Thompson, my parents have no idea how hard it is for me to stare at my teacher on the screen for hours every day. It, it's, it's so hard for me. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I bet it is. Seventh grade boy, you, you kidding? I mean, they move constantly. And they don't want to be looking in the teacher's eyes at every moment and have the teacher looking at them every moment. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And that's what, what Zoom felt like to them. Yeah. But what I hope your listeners take away is the anxious call from camp is just one form of children saying to their parents, I'm not sure I can do this. I'm worried. I'm nervous. I'm not sure I can do this. And it's where a parent has to filter the smoke and make it mild and not immediately panic, not immediately get anxious about their anxiety, but say, well, I, you know, you were pretty excited and I think you should give it some more days and I bet you can do it. You know, I have a dear friend whose son said the sweetest thing to him and it was so painful for his dad. He really was so excited for camp and then it was time to go. And he was like, I wish I could have the excitement of camp without actually having to go to camp. <laughs> that's very that's so brilliant. A, that's a kind of philosophical 
conundrum, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Anyway, his dad the, sent him right off to camp. <laughs> <laughs>